Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 for the passage we'll examine this morning. While you're turning there, I want to share a little story with you. About 15 years ago, my, my wife Terry and I were living in Tyler, and our church had a system called the phone tree. And the system would, would call every person, every member of the church, and play a recorded message. One week we received a recording from our very excited pastor who said, I'm reaching out to share some sensational news. This Sunday, we're going to have a very important person at our church, and you don't want to miss it. The governor of the state of Texas is coming to our church, and he's going to take time to meet everyone who wants to meet him and wants to know him. So tell everybody you know, bring them to church so they can meet him. And then there was a pause, and he said, well, I have to be honest, governor's not coming. But Jesus is going to be there, and he wants to meet everyone who's coming, and he's going to take time with them. So tell everybody you know, because you're going to want them to meet him. This funny little story reveals a chilling fact about us. Many times we're more interested in secondary things than the most important thing in life. Paul David Tripp said that one of the great, uh, great dangers for all of us is that we have this perverse ability to look around us and not see the amazing glory of God. Even though, as Isaiah puts it, the whole earth is full of his glory, we can be incre incredibly blind to the display that is everywhere around us. Our view gets clouded with other things in the paths of our sight. The fact is that God may not seem very real to many of you. You may not understand how significant he is and what a relation, that a relationship with him should be your highest priority. The problem is that we don't really know him the way we should. And if we knew him for who he really is, then our lives would be very different. A.W. Tozer made a very true statement about this. Take a look at it on the screen. He said, the most important thing about us is what we know about God. Dr. Stephen Lawson explains the importance of knowing God when he said, everything in your life proceeds from how you feel about God. Whether you have high and lofty thoughts about God or low thoughts, your Christian life rises and falls with your knowledge of God. Many of us don't know God very well at all. We don't understand his character, why he's done what he's done. And to many people, God doesn't seem to affect their life, and therefore God is insignificant to them. Many Christians spend only one hour a week on Sunday morning focused on God. If you divide that one hour a week by the number of waking hours that we all have, it comes out to less than 1%, less than 1% of your time spent focused on the Lord. I can tell you that if I focused on my wife less than 1% of my time, I wouldn't have much of a marriage, and she would probably want to kick me to the curb. I don't think anyone will know much about God spending less than 1% of their time with him. 
The passage we're studying this morning is going to reveal some of the most important truths of the Holy God and how we should respond to him. The title of this message is The Right Response to Holy God. And I, I want to ask you to please stand while I read this passage. It's Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy and the, is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Heavenly Father, I just pray, Lord, for your spirit in this place, Lord. I pray that you would, would fill this temple with your majesty and with your glory, Lord. That everyone in the sound of my voice, Lord, would know who you are this morning. And that they would see themselves for who they are. And I pray, Lord, for a work in your spirit. Thank you, Lord. You may be seated. Since we're coming into Isaiah chapter 6, let me give you a little background before we dig in. Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. And many Bible scholars consider Isaiah uh, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah and him being the suffering servant. He foretold many of the details of, of Jesus' life, where he would be born, and details about his death. Isaiah foretold many things, but he primor primarily foretells. Like every prophet, he was charged with speaking to the people as the Lord directs him, no matter the personal consequences. Isaiah was also a very highly regarded statesman. He was welcomed in the king's court, and he was counselor to four different kings during his lifetime. Um, he spoke the word of the Lord to kings and to the common people. But Isaiah lived in a very troubling time in history, and the beginning of verse 1 gives us an important clue about this where it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah is giving us an important historical reference point. Records indicate that King Uzziah died in 739 B.C. But 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 26 tells us about his life. He became a king at 16 years old, and he ruled for an incredible 52 years. He began his reign very well, and the scripture tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord blessed him in many ways. He was a gifted king and talented at agriculture, an exceptional military leader, and his fame grew far and wide 
as a mighty king. And the entire country was blessed with prosperity and safety under his leadership. Unfortunately, later in life, he forgot it was the Lord that had blessed him and guided him. And he became puffed up with pride. He became so prideful, in fact, that he went to the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense, which only the priests were allowed to do. And the priest tried to stop him, but he forced his way, and the Lord instantly punished him by giving him leprosy, which brought about his separation from the people, um, and eventually it caused his death. However, even in leprosy and separation from the people, the people relied on him as king. It's kind of a strange thing. So when King Uzziah died, the nation was in crisis. The king they had trusted for their provision and their safety was dead. And they also knew there was an Assyrian king who was chomping at the bit to invade. Just like the people... Isaiah was shaken to the core. What would become of them now that the king was dead? Who would be their new leader? Would they be conquered and enslaved? Would they have the prosperity that they enjoyed under the king? That was a situation that Isaiah was facing in the historical context of this passage. And that brings us to the first point in our outline, that we must realize God's holiness Verse 1 continues, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. I want to point out first here that when you see the Lord spelled in your Bible with a capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, that that's a specific name for God. And that specific name is Adonai. And Adonai means the sovereign one. So it's significant that Isaiah was seeking God in this crisis like never before, and the sovereign God revealed himself to Isaiah. And verse 1 continues by saying that the train of his robe filled the temple. This may not seem like much to us, but in that time, the length of the king's robe displayed his majesty. Whenever a king conquered more ter territory, they would add length to his robe. And it would get longer and longer as his majesty grew in his strength. So Isaiah is reminded in this crisis that the sovereign Lord is so great that the train of his robe filled the entire temple. There was no room for any other glory but the glory of God. No earthly king could even compare to the majesty of God. Isaiah and the people had placed their confidence in a human king who died. And in this crisis, Isaiah sees the true king, the sovereign king, and that God is still in power and unshaken and unmoved by the death of Uzziah or any other event. This is good for us as believers to, to hold on to when we're in a crisis, right? No matter how big the problem God is bigger and still on the throne, and we can look to him to be with us and to sh show us his glory in those trials. This incredible scene continues to unfold when we read in verse 2 that above him stood the seraphim. These are angelic, heavenly beings. And the word seraphim is only used in this one place in Scripture. 
Seraphim means burning ones. And it describes their brilliant appearance as well as their attitude toward God. These angelic beings were as brilliant as flaming fire, which points to the purity and the power of the heavenly court. And verse 2 continues to describe them. It says, Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The seraphim are covering their feet out of respect for the holiness of this place. You might remember that when Moses saw the burning bush, God, bush, God spoke to him and said to remove his sandals because you're on holy ground. Being close to God demands respect. With two wings, he covered his face as he flew. They covered their face because they could not look at the glory of the infinitely holy God or they would be burned up in an instant. This might remind you of Moses when he was asking God to show his glory and God told him that if he saw his face, he would die. This is also very significant when we consider that these heavenly creatures were not stained by Adam's sin. Right? They're in heaven. They're not human. However, they are still created beings. And they can't look fully on the unveiled face of the creator either. In fact, the in the order of things, these heavenly beings are closer to caterpillars than they are to God. There is an infinite distance, an infinite gap that separates everything that's created from the creator. It's also an example to us that these beings who were on fire for God were also the ones that were closest to him. Everything in their existence was focused on the worship of God. And that brings us to our next point. When we really understand God's holiness, we realize that he alone is worthy of worship. Verse 3 says, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this worship is continually sounding out. One seraphim is crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then one on the other side is, is crying out, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Back and forth, back and forth, proclaiming who he is. Another thing to, to pay attention to is when a word is repeated in Scripture, it's to bring attention and emphasis. So what does this mean? In our finite minds, we cannot understand the infinite holiness of God. We are so used to sin that we are, we're comfortable with it. We are very far from holy, and that makes it hard for us to understand what holiness is. But God's holiness is infinite purity. He is completely free from any spot or stain. He is perfection without ever a wrong thought or motive. There's never even a hint of anything less than absolute perfection from him. John MacArthur beautifully describes it like this. God is a cut above, set apart from his creation. Nothing and no one is on his level. He is infinitely holy, high and lifted up. 
He towers above the universe. He towers above human history. He towers above all who dwell on the earth. He is transcendent, majestic in splendor, infinitely holy, morally blameless, and flawless in his character. Without any sin, he is light, and in him is no darkness. His judgment is holy. His decrees holy. In all that God is and done, does, he is flawless and blameless, absolutely perfect. Repeated three times, this elevates holy to a superlative degree. It's holy, holier, holiest. He is supreme in holiness, morally and ethically, entirely separate from his creation. See, we don't understand a holy God much less a holy, holy, holy God. And it's also significant that this is the only attribute of God in the Scripture that's repeated three times. It doesn't say mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or love, love, love. And even though it's impossible for us to comprehend the holiness that is God, we must try to understand we have to try to understand what Scripture is emphasizing. It's the lack of understanding of God's holiness. It's the reason for our shallowness. It's the reason that we aren't broken over our sin. It's the reason for our selfishness and the reason for our weakness and disobedience. We don't really understand what holy is and who holy God is, and that's why we compromise with our sin, and we only do what we desire. Verse 4 goes on to add even more emphasis. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is very similar to what we see in Exodus 19, starting at 16 through 18. It says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This is the consuming fire. It's judgment on everything that is not like him. Everything not perfect everything not holy shaking and fire and smoke one commentator describes it like standing at the foot of an erupting volcano the earth is shaking so violently that you cannot stand or even run from it the explosive force and power of it is overwhelming if every government and all our wealth and technology and every man on earth made every effort to try to stop it an erupting volcano would overwhelm it in a second. It's unstoppable. And that is merely a created thing. An erupting volcano is insignificant in comparison to the omnipotent, infinite, holy creator God. His power and might and judgment demands awe and worship. He is truly awesome awesome and everyone will bow when they see him and be overwhelmed by who he is and this brings us to our next point 
When we understand God's holiness, we realize our sinfulness. And this is what Isaiah sees. He sees God for the sovereign, holy king he is. And Isaiah finally speaks in verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Isaiah's first words might be surprising to many of us. We may think, well, I'll be standing there praising and worshiping God. We might think that we've earned a place there. But that's not what Isaiah was thinking. Isaiah was in despair at the sight of the infinite holiness. And his first words in this passage are, woe is me. And this is not just a term for despair. It's also a curse. When the Old Testament prophets made announcements, they would often begin with, hear the word of the Lord. And then they would speak forth whatever God told them to say. Uh, this could be positive and start with words like blessed or blessings. Or when it was negative, they would say, woe. Isaiah uses this word at least ten times in his prophecy referring to God's judgment. Jeremiah used it, Ezekiel used it, Nahum used it, Amos and Habakkuk used it. You get the idea. Almost every Old Testament prophet used it. And in the New Testament, Jesus used it too. He said in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all manner of uncleanliness. Jesus pronounced a curse on them for their spiritual state of hypocrisy. And Isaiah says here, woe is me. In other words, I am cursed. Isaiah, the best man in the land, God's servant and prophet, sees the holiness of God and immediately pronounces a curse on himself. He sees God for who God is, and the result is he's overwhelmed with the sin and defilements in himself. In comparison to the infinite holiness of God, there is nothing good in him. And he goes on further. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. In other words, I'm destroyed. I'm judged. I'm ruined. The New King James Version says, I am undone. One look at God's holiness, and he sees the naked truth of himself. He's a wretched sinner, and he knows instantly that, as Jonathan Edwards says, that he is a sinner in the hands of an angry God. He has no hope in himself whatsoever. God is holy, and Isaiah sees his own righteousness like filthy rags. So we've reached the climactic turn in this passage, and, and the next point the right response to the realization of the holiness of God is confessing to the truth of your sinful condition. Isaiah confesses in verse 5, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah sees the truth of God and he admits the truth of himself. And we'll say that again. Isaiah sees the truth of God and he admits the truth of himself. And if you don't see yourself like Isaiah, then you don't see God for who he is. Isaiah confesses, I'm unclean. And unclean means defiled. To be ceremonially, uh, ceremonially impure, impure according to the standard. And the standard is holy, holy, holy God. 
Isaiah realizes the truth and can't help but confess he's impure in the presence of absolute purity. It's also to, important to remember that he's a believer. As believers, we can fool ourselves that we're better than, than other people who don't know the Lord, but we still sin. Isaiah recognized that he is a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Believers must never forget our own propensity for sin, and our hearts should break for those around us who are exactly the same as we are. Believers, we must continue to humbly consider the absolute holiness of God. To be broken and mourn over our sin and those, the sin of those around us. And stay focused on the need of everyone for a Savior. Now I want to point something out here that may not be obvious without a little bit of thought. We are looking at God's love and mercy in this passage. You see, Isaiah only just became aware of his condition. However, God knew about Isaiah and his condition all along. God knows that he alone is holy, and his righteousness, righteousness demands that he must judge sin. But God loves so much, he mercifully holds back his judgment holds back his holy, righteous judgment. He revealed himself in his holiness to Isaiah, which in turn revealed Isaiah's sin to himself, and he repented. God could have rightfully judged Isaiah at any time, right? And this is true for us as well. But God is long-suffering, and he's merciful. And he loves us so much that he reveals himself in his word so that we can know him rightly and see ourselves for who we are. This is the mercy of God that he draws us and he gives us the power to know the truth and admit our sin and see the holy king, the Lord of hosts. Some folks may ask, if he loves so much, why does he judge us at all? Allowing the sin to go unpunished would make him an unjust judge and not holy. Just like a human judge would never let a convicted murderer go unpunished, how much more unjust would it be for righteous and holy God to overlook sin? But God, but God in his love and mercy provided a way. He sent his son to take our punishment. And we should respond to his mercy. Which brings us to the next point. We respond to God by surrendering to Christ's lordship, his purification and his atonement. Isaiah confesses and repeats in verse 5, and then in verse 6 and 7 we read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your, li your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Notice the word then in verse 6. The word then is so important here. Then, immediately, as soon as he confessed his sin, then, there was no probation period. 
There was no additional time for him to work his way into a place of forgiveness. As soon as he acknowledged his sinfulness, then one of the seraphim flew to him with a burning coal from the altar to make away, to take away his guilt and atone for his sin. The burning coal from the altar here is referring to atonement for sin. And we can get a clearer understanding of, of that when we read about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice for sin is burned on the altar, and a priest would take a censer full of coals from the altar and incense into the holiest, of pl- and the holiest place. And he would put incense on the coals, and a cloud of smoke would come out and cover the mercy seat so he would not die. And he would sprinkle the blood from the sacrifice for sin on the mercy seat. And God would look down. Instead of sin, he would see the blood of that sacrifice. This clearly points to the shed blood of Christ and his work of atonement. The cross is the altar where Jesus' blood was poured out and he laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sin. The fire of the cross is atonement for our sin. And believers are cleansed and purified by the person and work of Christ. 1 John 1, 9 and 10 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it goes on to say, If we say we have not sinned, then we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. When we confess our sin and surrender to the Lordship of Christ, he purifies us, he atones for and forgives our sin, and we are made right before God. The coal of holy fire is mercy and grace, a work of Christ on the cross to cleanse and purify everyone who surrenders. The holiness of God consumes everything that is unclean. He's not stained. He cannot be stained. He is absolutely faithful to forgive them, and this is just. This is right. This is holiness to overwhelm and judge everything that is not perfect. And if we in our corruption say that we're not sinners, if we say we don't need Christ's sacrifice, then we don't understand the truth. We make God a liar. And we call the the holy unholy. His word of truth is not in us, and we exchange the truth of God's lordship and loving sacrifice for a lie that we don't sin and we do not need atonement and we don't need forgiveness. See, there's only one way to be cleansed from sin, and that's to confess our sin and repent and surrender our lives up and over to Jesus. He died on the cross to atone for our sin, and without Christ's atonement, his gracious work to bring us into his, the realization of who he is, then we're utterly lost. And this is Jesus' holiness. This is Jesus' grace and mercy and love to make a way for us when we have no way to forgive us when we confess our sin and to cleanse us 
and to pray, pay the price for our sin. And now the last point. You respond to the holiness of God and the work of Christ by living focused on sharing the gospel wherever you go. Take a look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? God speaks, and we clearly see the Trinity in this passage. God asks, Whom shall I send, singular, and who will go for us, plural? There's only one God, and he is three persons, and it's beyond our ability to comprehend. There's mystery in God, but even though I don't understand it, I have faith in what the Word of God says and teaches, and God is greater than anything that I can know or imagine. That's who God is. I can't fully comprehend him, but I put my faith in the infinite God. Look at Isaiah's immediate response to God's question. Then I said, here I am, send me. There's really no other response to God and what he's done. Isaiah immediately agreed to go and to speak for God to the people and to tell them of his holiness and his power and his love and his mercy, his work of atonement and his forgiveness. Isaiah didn't need time to pray about it. The answer is obvious. He is completely surrendered to the God of creation, the one who saved and cleansed him. God is with him, and Isaiah lives only to serve the one true king. So believers, our response should be the same, to go and share who, who God is with our family and our friends, our coworkers, the kids at the Little League Park. Wherever we go, we're excited to share who God is and what he's done. There really can't be any reason why we wouldn't. Has God cleansed you and saved you from judgment to eternal life? Do you know God for who he truly is and what he's done? What could possibly keep you from sharing the truth of that with everyone you meet? God is a missional God. He wants those that don't know him to come to know him. Jesus commanded believers to share the gospel, teaching and making disciples in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And he wasn't just talking to preachers and missionaries. Everyone who knows him is commanded like Isaiah, to live and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the message we're commanded to tell. It's what Isaiah saw, the glory and infinite holiness of God, and that he alone is worthy of worship, and his supremacy is absolute. And when Isaiah saw the Lord, the sovereign God, he immediately knew the truth of himself. He clearly saw the standard that we'll all be judged by, and he would never measure up. Isaiah confessed his sin, and right then God forgave and purified him. And I also want to make another thing clear. The sovereign Lord seated on the throne is Jesus. We don't have time to unpack it, but at the end of John chapter 12, um, check that out when you get home. John tells us that Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ Jesus and that he is holy and sinless and spotless Lamb of God who laid down his life to pay the penalty for your sin. So where are you today with Jesus Christ? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? 
What prevents you from coming? Is it the sin that you would have to give up? Is it pride? Don't be like Uzziah and let pride build up in you. Self-sufficiency. And don't be like the people of that time, just trusting in earthly things and earthly leaders. Jesus made a way for you to be holy, and by his atonement, you can have everlasting life. A new life with the creator of the universe who loves you, and he wants you to be with him. And this new life begins right now, right then, then. As soon as you confess and surrender your life to him, that's when it starts. And if you've only today, just now, understood the holiness of God and your sinful condition, won't you please surrender to him now? Don't wait. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you feel his pull on your heart? That's real. And the right way to respond is to give your life to him. We must remember that one day we'll all stand before the holy, holy, holy God. And there will only be two kinds of people there. Those who are forgiven and those who will be judged. Jesus made a way for you to be forgiven and cleansed of all your unrighteousness. So make the decision. Decide right, right where you're at to surrender to him today. Let's pray.